This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. So it is an exciting day, chapter one of the story. How many of you have got your books? How many of you at least bought your book? Okay, there we go. That's awesome. How many of you have read chapter one this week? Man, all right. That's good. Those of you who haven't, it's okay. No condemnation. You can read this afternoon or read a little bit later in the week. But, um, but the whole goal is we are going to go through the Bible from beginning to end this year. And, uh, and we're reading from a book uh, called The Story. It's an abridged version of the Bible in 31 chapters. And we're going to hit it over a period of 31 weeks. And so we ask everybody, each week before you come to church, make sure that you've read that chapter for that week. And this week, chapter one is all about creation. Yes. And guys, I've told you, we, I did this long introduction, about a four-week introduction on this, and this is all about getting back to the Word of God. How many of you know the Word of God is the most powerful force in the universe? And it's been, it is a gift to you and to I, and we have got to get back into the Word of God. They tell us that the average American has four Bibles in their homes, but a large percentage say that they have never, they confess that they have never read it. We are missing out on our very life source. We've got to get back to the Word of God. And during the introduction, I told you, the Word of God is a mural that tells a single story. It's a mural. Remember I told you we gave the example of the, of the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. It's disconnected from every other painting, and you don't really know what it's all about, and people still wonder and, and, and try to figure out the story of Mona Lisa. But then we talked about how the Bible is more like the creation of Adam, the painting of the Sistine Chapel with over 300 characters, that if you know the right order and the way to go, it tells the entire story of redemption. And that's the way the Bible is. Sometimes we don't quite understand the order and, and the chronology and how everything goes, but once we understand the story of what God is doing in the upper story, it'll absolutely change your life forever. So with that said, everybody look in your service guide. I gave you a timeline, and this is not just for today. This is actually for the entire series. So if you want that, it is yours to keep and hold on to. But I want to give a quick plug. I, I don't have the book here with me right now, but I want to give a quick plug for a book that we've had for sale out there that we're out of at the moment, but you can get online. It is called The Heart of the Story. And I highly recommend that if you can, you get a hold of the book, The Heart of the Story. Some of you may need to write that down. And the story, as we read it, is straight scripture from the NIV version. But the heart of the story is a commentary. So it's a 31-chapter commentary on each chapter of the story. And it goes in and talks about the upper story and the lower story, which um, if, if you're a guest with us, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But, um, but I definitely recommend you guys get the heart of the story. And it's really it's, uh, by Randy Frazee. He's Max Lucado's pastor. And um, it has some really great stuff in there to follow along with and, and help you see some things that maybe you've never seen in Scripture before. But if you would put that timeline up on the screen. And what they did is um, just a regular one, the first one. Yep. That's what you got in your service guide. What, what they've done in the heart of the story is they've broken the story down into five sections, into five, what they call five movements. And so you've got in there, you've got the story of the garden, which is what we're going to cover today, the story of Israel, the story of Jesus, the story of the church, and the story of the new garden, which brings us basically back where we started. But obviously, uh, today we're going to cover movement one, which is the story of the garden. Now, each week, each of these 31 weeks, we're not going to cover a different, a different movement. It's just the, the story of the garden, that, that first movement, is actually very short. It's, it's the first 
11 chapters of Genesis is, is what it is. Now, that first 11 chapters of Genesis covers, we don't know exactly how long, it covers at least 2,000 years of history in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Is that not crazy? And so we're going to cover that whole movement today. And so in, as you saw on that note sheet that had, um, that sheet I gave you that had the different movements on it, it gives a summary for each one and tells the over arching story of the Bible from beginning to end, but we're just going to focus on story, on movement one today, the story of the garden. And so if you want to take out that sheet and you want to read, and I've got it on the screen as well, you can just kind of read along with me. The story of the garden, here's, the, here's what it's all about, the summary. In the upper story, God creates the lower story. Again, we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. His vision is to come down and to be with us in a beautiful garden. The first two people reject God's vision and are escorted from paradise. Their decision introduces sin into the human race and keeps us from community with God. At this moment, God gives a promise and launches a plan to get us back. Everybody say, praise God. The rest of the Bible is God's story of how he kept that promise and made it possible for us to enter into a loving relationship with him. So as we begin chapter 1 today, we're going to talk about the summary of this movement. And uh, you should have gotten a note sheet in your service guide. And my goodness, we're going to have to move quickly. Um, you can follow along in that note sheet. You can also follow along in the YouVersion Bible app. And y'all all right if I talk fast? My wife will be looking at me going, slow down, slow down. It's all right. So number one, in your, on your note sheet, we're, like I say, we're breaking down this first movement. Number one, in the lower story, God, I'm sorry, in the upper story, God creates the lower story. Now, you remember when we talked about this. The upper story is God's perspective. From the beginning of time, before there was time, we had the upper story. We had God and what he was doing, his existence, his perspective. And God creates the lower story. The lower story is our perspective of life, how we see things. Like I talked about before, we as human beings are bound. We, we have certain limitations on us. We can, we can see behind us in the past, and we can see maybe just a little bit ahead of the road in front of us, but we can't even see around the next bend. That's why things take us by surprise sometimes and, 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 and that kind of thing. So the lower story is our perspective. It's our life as we know it, as we see it, as we experience it. The upper story is what God is doing. It's his perspective. It is, it's understanding that God isn't bound by time. So he doesn't see just the past and the future. He sees past, present, and future all together at the same time. He's present in all of them simultaneously. And he sees from a, not just a, a horizontal perspective like we do. He sees vertically, he sees panoramic views that we can't even begin to see. So the, in the upper story, God creates the lower story. So the first thing we find in the Bible is the story of creation. Now that very first verse Powerful verse most of us have memorized, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Everybody say it together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And we see in the very first four words of Scripture, in the very first four words of the story, we're introduced to the main character, right? God himself. In the beginning, God. We're introduced to the main character. Everyone and everything else find their life in him. We know it because of the next six words. God created the heavens and the earth. So everything came from him. Now, I want to mention a couple things here right quick. Number one, the Bible, guys, the Bible is not a science book. The Bible is a book of faith. How many of you would agree there's some things in the word of God that you don't understand? Yeah. 
The Bible is not intended to scientifically reveal things. It's not intended to be a science book that uncovers the age of the earth or how God pulled things off. But I want you to understand this. Science will always back up the Bible, whether now or later. The prophet Isaiah talked about the circle of the earth when people were talking about the earth being flat. Guys, science will always back up and support the Bible. So God could have chosen for Genesis to reveal more scientific processes of things so that we would have a clear understanding. But if we clearly understood everything, there wouldn't be a need for faith, would there? And so God, instead, he reveals the upper story starting in Genesis, in the beginning of the first verse of Genesis, and he creates the lower story. And that we have to read, and we simply have to trust, and we have to walk out by faith. The story of creation leaves a lot of questions for me. If I was to stand before God and have a few minutes to ask some questions about the garden, I think I would have a handful. I think I'd have a bunch of them. I was thinking about this because, you know, for me, a lot of Christians today believe that the earth is 6,000 years old. Guys, I have no idea how old the earth is. I don't know. We know that Adam lived 930 years, and we know we, there's a record of his descendants and such from there. But here's a question I have. The 930 years of Adam's life. Is that measured from his creation or is it measured from the fall? Because Adam and Eve were created as eternal beings. They were meant to live forever. I don't know if there was any need for a birthday when you're an eternal being, is there? I, I personally kind of am of the perspective that Adam probably lived 930 years from the fall. You shall surely die. Yeah, it's time to start counting. <laughs> right? Year number one. And if that is the case, then we have no idea how long they were in the garden before the fall. Did they take of the fruit on day seven? Eh, I don't know. They was naming animals and stuff, right? I don't know. We have no idea how much time actually passed. So other questions I was thinking. Did God just speak and things began to grow? Did they grow very slowly? Did they grow very quickly? Did he just say like, blue whale, <laughs> And there was, oh, get it in the water, get it in the water. <laughs> Did he just speak and it appeared? Did he speak and the processes of science began to take place and things began to grow before his very eyes? I, I, man, how awesome would that have been to experience and see? Don't know. I have heard people that have suggested that the creation, that each day of creation was an infinite amount of time, that each day was millions of years, and this explains theories like the theory of evolution. Guys, there's no proof of that. Uh, that. That can't be proven. And all I can do is take Scripture literally in what it says. And from my studying point of view, it is completely appropriate to believe in a young earth creationism point of view. To believe that God created the earth in six days. And on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. Therefore, that would leave the earth rather young, wouldn't it? However... Why does the earth look so much older? Why does it seem so much older than what it is? Well, here, I'll give you my short answer. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I'll tell you this. There are some theories that I've, I've found interesting. For instance, um, for instance, the flood of Noah. You know, when the flood of Noah hit, we know that water covered the highest mountain peaks, right? Does anybody have any idea what that kind of pressure would do to the earth? Let me give you an example. Anybody in here a scuba diver? I know Mike Reed's scuba diver. Sean and, and Lauren and I dive, yeah. 
We have just basic certification. Basic scuba certification, you don't go more than about 100 feet deep. Yeah, probably more about like 80 feet deep on basic certification. Let me tell you what. I one time stayed down a little too deep, a little too long, and felt the pressure when I hit the service. Pounding headache, thought I was going to vomit. I mean, I was super hot. I mean, all this kind of stuff. Do you know what the pressures of the oceans will do? Our, our best submarines that our military have can only go down about 2,000 feet. Do you know the average depth of our oceans today is 4,300 feet deep? Now, anybody have any idea how high Mount Everest is? It is 29,000 feet high. So imagine the depths of our oceans that we can't hit today because it's so deep that it would crush our submarines into a, something the size of a tin can. Imagine if you got those 4,300 feet of water and you put another 29,000 feet of water on top of it. Imagine what it would do to the earth. They talk about pressure that causes, causes coal to become diamonds and creates fossils and all these things. Pressure of the water in and of itself could have possibly done that. We have no idea. How many would say you have a lot of questions about creation? There's a lot of questions to be answered. Some people believe in the gap theory. Y'all ever heard of the gap theory? And I found the gap theory fascinating when I was a, I don't know, I was a teenager. I, I wrote up a bunch of notes on it. I wish I could find that all today. Um, I studied this at one point. The gap theory says there could be an infinite amount of time between Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 2, verse 3. There could be an infinite amount of time in between. Very interesting. Um, it, 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 we'll just read it real quick. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the next word? Now, that's one of the things in the gap theory. They say now, which several versions use the word now. Some versions leave it off. But now infers that something happened is what they say in this theory. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void or formless and empty, it says in this version. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God, some versions say the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. And so what they're saying is that between that first and second verse, that something happened. They use prophecy from Isaiah, and they use the book of Noah. I mean, I'm sorry, the story of Noah and some different things to, uh, to try and prove a point in this. I'm not going to go into what they believe happened during the gap theory because it is wild. And it, and it has actually no bearing on our eternity, has no bearing on our relationship with the Lord. And so it has no bearing on what we understand about creation. But, um, but if it's something that interests you, it's something fun to kind of look at sometimes and, and study into. But... Uh, but in my opinion, regardless of what your view is out of everything I just said, regardless of what your view is, it doesn't undermine the authority of Scripture. The story is still accurate. However you look at it, God is still the creator. And, hey, I'll give it to you. It started with a big bang. It just wasn't an accident. It wasn't by chance. The big bang was the voice of God. We need to understand that God started with nothing and he created absolutely everything that we see and everything that we don't see. Amen? And so once we understand that he is the creator God, he can do whatever he wants to do. Whether it's over a million years or whether it's a nanosecond, whether it happens instantly, doesn't matter. Once he is a creator, that's all that matters. So as we move on, why did God do all of this? He creates this beautiful Garden, we know, called the Garden of Eden, and it was somewhere around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. How many of you actually have the book, the story, on you? 
If you open up the story and you look inside the front cover, just inside the front cover, and I'm actually going to put the image on the screen, that is what you see on the inside of the front cover of the story. Um, the cool thing about this is, it's a, as it says, the world of ancient Israel, uh, the cool thing is that right here it shows you the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And in the book of Genesis, it talks about um, four, four rivers flowing out of the Garden of Eden, and two of those that it mentions is the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So we don't know exactly where the Garden of Eden was, but we do see a point there where those two rivers are together. And so, uh, so we know that somewhere in that region, anybody know what that region of the earth is today? That is Iraq. It is. And so somewhere in, in that region of Iraq would probably be where the Garden of Eden was at that time. So with that, God goes on to create this garden and he places his greatest achievement, his crowning achievement, he places it in the garden. And that crowning achievement was us, right, was humanity. God creates the universe. He creates the 100 billion or so galaxies that we've found today with telescopes. He creates all this for his glory, but his ultimate objective comes down to who he places in that garden on that little blue planet. And uh, we know being man and woman, Adam and Eve. So point number one, in the upper story, God creates the lower story. Point number two, his vision is to come down and be with us in a beautiful garden. His vision is to come down and be with us in a beautiful garden. Guys, I've mentioned this before. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they were all present at creation. They were all there, a part of this. And they simply desired to come down and to do life with the community of humanity. How many of you know that God is all about family? And we see it right from the beginning. Right from the, right from the beginning of Genesis, we see that God is all about relationship. It's what matters most to him. And so why would God choose us? Why would he consider us to be his crowning achievement? Why would he create us in the first place? Well, in that book I just mentioned, The Heart of the Story, he gives an example that I thought describes it beautifully. How many of you in here are a parent? At some point in your relationship with your spouse, you decided that you wanted to share life with another human being. And it's one that you two together with God would create. And if you're like us, when you decided to have that baby and, and, and you got pregnant, you did all kinds of special things to prepare, didn't you? You got just the right bed and just the right blankets and whatever else it may be. If you're like us, you probably, uh, probably got some special stuffed animals or something. I know with each of our kids, before they were born, we went to build a bear and made a bear that we had at the hospital uh, ready to go for them. And I know, um, I remember when we decided to do that just weeks before Lauren was born and we were living up in Illinois and we drove up to Chicago to the... Uh, Lincoln Park Mall, I think, and got, a, and got a bear made that she has today. And Aaron and Madison both have theirs from, uh, from that we got at Wolf Chase before they were born. And you spent hours and hours preparing their rooms. And just like we spent hours, well, we spent hours preparing Lauren's room anyway. By the time you have a second and third one, you know. <laughs> Been there, done that. We spent hours painting Lauren's room, and um, we actually, I remember Sean and I driving to the Walmart in Champaign, Illinois. We drove to the Walmart, and we bought coloring books, and, um, and we got some of the images 
and we copied them onto overhead projector slides. And we projected them up on the wall, and we traced out these, these pictures, and we painted them. There was a picture of Winnie the Pooh with a balloon, and a picture of Dumbo, and a, a picture of Tigger, and all these. And we painted those on the wall. And actually, I just thought this would be kind of cool. I found this recently, and I haven't even told my wife this, and, or my mom. You'll have to look at this video. What happened was... Um, uh, Sean and I had just bought our first house, and we'll go ahead and bring down the lights, yeah, um, <laughs> as I'm preparing. Uh, man, we're short on time. Um, Sean and I had just, built, had just bought our first house. My mom and dad hadn't seen it yet. At the same time, we're pregnant with our first child. And so I went around and I made a little video showing them around our house and then showing them the baby room that we had just started working on that very day. And I found this video. I just, I came across it a couple of months ago. And so, um, so I cut off a little piece of it and thought that we could show that real quick. Let's bring the lights down. Yeah. Sir Kitchen. Let's move on and I'll show you what we've done today for the baby room. Now, here is the images that we're looking to paint on the wall. There's one of Dumbo, Dumbo and Baby Mickey Mouse. And then here's the one of Winnie the Pooh with a balloon. And we're going to paint that on the wall of our baby room. Now, let me show you a baby room upstairs. Okay. And here it is, our new baby room with a ceiling fan I installed all by myself. Yeah, I know I need to patch the ceiling up a little bit there. White with the red trim. Of course, we're not done. You can see all of our little supplies. And then you can see our first little baby gift here that uh, Christy's mom got for us a little baby coat. Pretty cool. And so, anyway, that's, we did all this today. It's pretty cool. All right. That was our first baby room that we started preparing that day. And yes, I put that ceiling fan up all by myself. Some of you would be like, oh, I'll. I think I decided I would never do that again. But um, I also have a quick picture, uh, only one I could find, a picture of me giving Lauren a sponge bath on, on her changing table. But you can see the, you can see the Dumbo uh, on, the wall back, uh, on the wall back behind. So anyway, enough of that. What's that? I might have had a mustache. I don't know. I might have. I dyed my hair back then. I, had, I grew a beard and had all kinds of things. Hey, guys. When God created, when he, each day when he created things, he said that it was good, right? When he created Adam and Eve, he didn't say that it was good. He said that it was very good. It was like God saying, this is going to be great. I've got my two favorite people. I've got this beautiful garden, plenty of food, no disease, no sadness, people to have a relationship with who can enjoy this beautiful world that I've made. And so God wants Adam and Eve to have the same vision, right? Communing forever with him in the garden. But to do this, he has to do something. He has to give Adam and Eve something that he didn't give the rest of creation. He had to give Adam and Eve the freedom of what? The freedom of choice. And so how does he do that? I'm just going to move. I'm going to have to skip a little bit of stuff. How does he do that? He creates two different trees, right? He creates the knowledge, uh, I'm sorry, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they simply ate from the tree of life, guys, they would have lived forever in the garden. They would have lived forever with God. And they would have aligned their vision with his. But if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would be rejecting his vision. Which leads us to the second part 
of the story, which we call the fall of man. And that brings us to number three, the third part of that first movement. The first two people reject God's vision and are escorted from the garden. Their decision introduces sin into the human race and keeps us from community with God. We know that Adam and Eve go on and they eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Guys, when they bit into that fruit, they declared their decision right then and there. And we know that immediately something changed in their nature. They spiritually died and sin began to course through them. Sin is a condition. Sin keeps us from the presence of the Lord, right? And at this point, it is born into the world and is passed on to all the offspring of the first couple. And we know that the root of evil, the root of sin is selfishness. Selfishness is the root of hatred and jealousy and envy and violence and anger and lust and greed. And suddenly, Adam and Eve find themselves neck deep in it because they took of the fruit. So now, Adam and Eve had two choices before. They had the choice between the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now again, they've got two choices. They can't go back to the tree of life. They have a choice between good and evil is all they've got. So think about this. Before they took of the fruit, Adam and Eve faced all their decisions with only one option in mind. But now they've got these two options of good and evil. The good option is what's right and moral. It's what's good for the sake of others. And then there's the other option that began warring within them, um, the evil choice, which is immoral. It's about me getting what I want at the expense of other people. And Adam and Eve are now conflicted and fighting this evil. So what was the first evidence that something changed in their life? In Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, actually, just, let's just read verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for their, sel- for their coverings for themselves. Some versions say immediately their eyes were opened. Others say at that moment their eyes were opened. Like I say, I don't know how long Adam lived in the garden. Adam and Eve lived in the garden before the fall. However, we know that when they ate of the fruit, immediately something changed in them. God said, if you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Immediately, death was there. Immediately, sin took root. So what's the first thing they do when they bite into the fruit? The Bible says they clothe themselves with fig leaves. I did a little bit of reading because I was going, that's interesting. We've talked before about the shame that they experienced and such. But I believe they were now looking at each other. And, and we know that in that moment, God wasn't around. He wasn't walking with them in the garden. It was just the two of them when they sewed these fig leaves together. So I believe that before they were having good thoughts about each other. Now all of a sudden, evil and shameful thoughts were filling their minds uh, for the first time. And so they cover themselves because they feel shame and they feel vulnerable. And they cover themselves up from the other person and they put themselves in the position, this, this defensive mode that mankind has been in really ever since. So instead of communing with God, they're now hiding from God. And they don't want to be with him uh, because now they know the difference between good and bad. And they recognize themselves as bad, as evil. So it's shame. So this single decision affects all of us even to this day. We know this because in Genesis chapter 4, or it's page 7 of the story, we're introduced to Adam and Eve's Two children. What were their children's names? Cain and Abel. So we know that Cain and Abel, they come, they offer these two sacrifices. Abel's sacrifice is accepted by God. Cain's sacrifice is rejected, right? So what do we find? We find a decision has to be made in Cain. Cain has, again, he has two choices. He has a good choice and an evil choice. The good choice. The good choice would have been for him to stop and recognize, okay, well, God didn't accept my sacrifice. He accepted my brother's. I guess maybe I need to learn from my brother how to bring an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord so I can be pleasing to him. That would have been the good choice to make, right? Instead, it says that he gets angry. 
It says that jealousy, it says that jealousy and anger rise up in him, so much so that in verse chapter 4, verse 7, God warns him. God says, Cain's sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God says, you've got a choice to make. Sin wants to have you. Rule over it. That very day, Cain goes out and he kills his brother, right? And it shows us something very important. Now, for the first time, we see sin passed on to the offspring of Adam and Eve. And we see that that went on and on. In, in Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, King David said, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So just like we got certain physical characteristics from our parents, just like we got certain physical characteristics from our fathers, in the same way, we also got his sin nature. We got that from our dad, and he got it from his dad, and he got it from his dad all the way back to Adam which almost doesn't seem fair, but it is what it is. Now, how many of us in here are human beings? Most of us. That's good. If you're a human being, that means you are a descendant of Adam. If you're a descendant of Adam, it means that you were conceived with a sin nature. And this nature keeps us from a holy God. And let me tell you what, when humanity is separated from God, it gets more and more evil. And that's what we see over and over again in the story. That once humanity is left apart from God, the expression of evil gets worse and worse. And that's what we see all the way from the fall of Adam and Eve to the flood of Noah. We see that the condition of mankind, the expression of sin, gets worse and worse and worse. And I think about that. I think about that kind of being the condition of our society today. And um, I'm going to keep moving on. Man was separated from God and sin had taken such root that things got so bad that they crossed the line of no return. And we see in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of human heart were evil, only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. How many of you know there's not much of a worse statement that could come from the mouth of God? That he regretted that he had made humanity. But thank God this wasn't the end. Thank God he still desperately loved mankind and he desperately wanted them back. So he gives chance after chance after chance for us to return. And this is the love of God that we can't comprehend, a love that, that, that loves us even in the state of our rebellion, a love that's still pursuing us even in the state of our rebellion. So as I said, mankind crosses a line of no return but God keeps pursuing mankind. In, in verses 7 and 8, in, in chapter 6, God says, I will wipe from the face of the earth, every, earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Aren't you thankful for that? So God gives mankind, he gives mankind another chance by starting over, allowing them to die in their depravity, and starting over with the righteous man, Noah, and his family. And we know that Noah goes on. He builds this giant ark. All the animals come and his family. God closes the door. Massive flood comes, wipes out the earth, covers the highest mountain peaks. And everybody, everybody except for Noah, his family, and the animals die. And when it's all over, we know that the, they open the door of the ark. They step out and they start to rebuild from, uh, from the seed of Noah. So it's a fresh start for the human race but we find out very quickly that the sin problem is still there, right? And what's the first evidence of it? And I'm, I'm not going to read the scripture right now, but if you look in Genesis chapter 9, verse 20 through 23, we see that one night Noah gets drunk. 
he's planted a vineyard, right? And he drinks his wine and he gets drunk and he passes out naked in his tent, his tent, the family tent, whatever it may have been. And, um, and so um, one of his sons, Ham, comes in, finds his dad naked. He has two choices. The good choice would have been to cover his father up and save him from humiliation. The, the evil choice would have been to go and get his brothers and bring them in and make fun of them. And so, um, so we know what he did. He went out and he, he tells his brothers, and, uh, but his brothers chose differently. They, out of respect, they walk in backwards into the tent with a, with a blanket over their shoulders, and they cover their father's nakedness and cover his, uh, cover his shame. They chose good that day, even though Ham uh, disgraced his father. And, you know, it may not seem like a huge sin. However, it signifies to us that sin was still alive and active in the human race. And again, sin begins escalating and is a problem just like it was before the flood. And as we come to the end of the first movement in, uh, Genesis cha- in chapter 11 of Genesis, we see that they create the Tower of, uh, of Babel. And we know at this time, everybody spoke the same language, right? And they're going to, uh, they, they all get together in this one location and they're going to build this tower into the heavens. And they're basically building a name for themselves totally separate from God. And really what they're doing is they're just, they're just drifting further and further away from him. But God steps in. He confuses their languages to stop the ability to work together. And he helps to save them from themselves. How many of you recognize a point in your life where God saved you from yourself? How thankful are we that sometimes God intervenes to save humanity from himself? So... It's a good thing when God intervenes. But even after all this, God's plan to save humanity um, was still right on track. And we see signs of it all the way back in the garden. And by the way, you may notice in your notes, I, I missed one statement from, uh, from the summary of Movement One. Uh, the next statement is, at this moment, God gives a promise and launches a plan to get us back. Guys, it was all the way back in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it says, The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. He replaces their fig leaf garments. Boy, I can't imagine those held together very good. That'd be embarrassing. He replaces their fig leaf garments with the skins of animals. And he's signaling to us the solution to getting back into relationship with them. It was going to require the shedding of blood. And it's the first sign of, uh, of sacrifice. It's the beginning of sacrifice for sin. But we also see, if you go back a couple of verses to verse 15, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God is telling the serpent that the offspring of the woman will ultimately crush his head. He says this in the Garden of Eden before they ever leave. He promises that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And he's prophesying of the last sacrifice, which we know would be Jesus, right? Which leads us to the last sentence in the movement. The rest of the Bible is God's story of how he kept that promise and made it possible for us to enter into a loving relationship with him. Let me get the worship team to come on up. Guys, let's all stand up together. Do you see the upper story here? God loves us so much. As as my dad was talking about a few minutes ago, before the foundations of the earth, before you were ever in your mother's womb, the Bible says that God knew you and he loved you and he had a purpose and a plan for your life. That's been the story from the very beginning. 
Did we ruin it or did God ruin it? We did it. But he made a plan right from the get-go, right there from the garden. Before they ever stepped out of the garden, he made a plan to restore mankind back to himself. And that's what that last statement is. He spends the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible is God fulfilling that plan to restore humanity back into a loving relationship with him. So let's all bow our heads. Every head bowed. Guys, you may be here and you recognize that you need a fresh start in life. You realize that that sin nature is what's driving and controlling you. Let me tell you what, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. Jesus paid the price so that you could be free. God desperately loves you and he is pursuing you. Even in the midst of rebellion and sin, The Holy Spirit is relentlessly pursuing you wherever you may be at this point in your life. Whether you're here, whether you're watching online, God's love is incomprehensible. A love that chases after us and pursues us even in the midst and the state of our rebellion. But let me say this, the day will come when he can't chase us any longer. Don't wait another moment to get things right with the Lord. Receive his love today. As I always say, it doesn't matter to me whether you've prayed a prayer before or not to receive Jesus into your heart. You know whether or not Jesus is Lord of your life. The Bible says that he's there at the door knocking. That's right now. He's knocking at the door of your heart and he's saying, I love you. You can do this. I want us to be together forever. Yes, it is. It is a heaven or hell issue. But you don't have to wait until you die to experience eternal life. Eternal life starts the moment you say yes to Jesus. You say yes to that last sacrifice. The one who took your sin and your shame, who took the punishment that you deserved. That's what makes the difference. So we're going to pray together before we close out. And if that's you, and you would say yes to the love of God. The Holy Spirit's drawn. He's pulling at your heart. With every head bowed, if that's you, and you would say, I need to say yes today. I want you to lift your hand and say, I need to surrender to Jesus today. Anybody in this place, lift your hand so I can see. Yeah. Anybody else? I see your hand. Okay. We're going to pray a prayer together. And as we close here in just a few minutes, our prayer partners are going to be down front. If you lifted your hand, I'm going to ask you at the end of service, people are going to be coming down for prayer requests and asking somebody to pray with them. I'm going to ask you to come down and talk to one of the prayer partners and just tell them, just say, I dedicated my life to Jesus today and let them pray over you. But we're going to pray a prayer together. And the Bible says, if you mean it with all your heart, it says that you will be saved. That you become a new creation. Old things are passed away. And what it simply means is that that sacrifice of Jesus on the cross It becomes your sacrifice. That shedding of blood that's required for sin, you say, you know what? I accept that sacrifice. I accept Jesus' offering of blood to cover my sin from this day forward. Let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. From the beginning of time, you knew me and you loved me. I recognize that I'm lost in my sin I've thought I knew what was best, but I'm an utter failure. 
Lord, I need you. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe you went to the cross and you laid down your life for me. You are my lamb. You are my sacrifice. And today, I accept that sacrifice as my own. I accept your blood to cover my sins, to cover my shame in Jesus' name. I will follow you all the days of my life. I declare that you are my Lord. I won't look to the left and the right, but I'm gonna look straight to you till the end. Holy Spirit, fill me, empower me to be everything you've called me to be. I'll follow you all the days of my life. I will never turn back. I trust you, God, in Jesus' name. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277. You are Lord, I'm a sinner.